What is the science of reading? What are leaders doing to accelerate reading achievement? We answer these questions and more in Science of Reading Leadership, Guiding Minds, Transforming Lives, powered by Just Right Reader. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Rich, and I'm the CEO and founder of Just Right Reader. And I am so excited to be here today. And I'm here with one of my very favorite researchers, Dr. Ray Reitzel. Ray and I have had this conversations over the past year talking about the science of reading, and I am so excited to have him on as our first guest on Guiding Minds, Transforming Lives. Ray is a distinguished senior research fellow in the Center for the School of the Future at Utah State University and emeritus faculty member and former dean of the College of Education at the University of Wyoming. He is the author of more than 235 published research reports, articles, books, book chapters and monographs, and he has helped us design all of our science of reading decodables um, right down to our letter and sound books. That's like everything you think about, Ray. So Ray and Dr. Reitzel, tell me, like, I love hearing your story. I don't actually know how you got into the science of reading and all of your reading research. I think I remember a story about it from the very beginning. Um, but can you tell us like a little bit of how you jumped into this research and what started you off thinking about reading so deeply? Sure, happy to tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I got out of college, just like most people do, became an elementary school teacher, um, taught kindergarten and then sixth grade and then third grade and, and then first grade. And, and uh, all during that time, uh, I kept feeling like I was quite competent at teaching math, and social studies and science, but this reading thing really perplexed me. I felt like all I was doing was going through the hoops of what was in my teacher's manual. I didn't know why I was doing it, what I was doing it for, where I was going. And I got really perplexed by this thing called reading. So that, that launched me into a desire to go and work on a master's degree and learn more about reading. And that uh, then when I got done with my master's degree, I thought, wow, that was interesting, but I still don't feel like I know enough about reading. So that sent me off to get a PhD. And the most influential book I read in graduate school was a book they wrote way back in the 70s called Teaching Reading Comprehension. And that lit me up. It led to my dissertation. It led to my desire to do research. Um, and so that was sort of the beginning of my research career. Um, I remember reading in that book about Dale Johnson's work in semantic mapping. And I read about this thing called story grammar. And it led me to my dissertation, which turned out to be focused on story mapping. And from there, uh, I conducted several studies on the efficacy of teaching kids story mapping as a way to process and remember text. And it wound up being published in, I think I had three or four publications in the Reading Teacher, Journal of Educational Research and uh, Reading Research and Instruction, a uh, whole bunch of publications on this thing called story mapping. And it wound up about in 2000 when the NRP did their big analysis on comprehension, um, they said that story mapping was one of the great scientifically supported reading research 
things teachers should teach to kids. And that that all all that work eventually landed me, you know, in the Reading Hall of Fame, uh, where people are selected to be in that group by members of the group for seminal contributions to the field. So story mapping was one of my big things. Um, I started out really being focused on comprehension for quite a while. And then I sort of diverged from there into some interesting areas of uh, work in uh, uh, fluency. So that's kind of a little bit about me. But you think a lot now about letters and sounds, like all the conversations I get to have with you are about kind of supporting kids and their letters and their sounds. So how did you, Mm -hmm. what brought you to to thinking about letters and sounds? And then you're gonna have to tell us kind of what your thinking is about. Oh, now come true confessions. Um, uh, I am one of the guilty parties. We only want all of your true confessions. Yeah. We did that. Uh, I was one of the early guilty parties of indulging in whole language. And uh, so I, I got to, th- I got to really being involved in whole language. And I started reading the early work of uh, people like Don Holdaway and Margaret Mooney in New Zealand and uh, got really interested in that work. And then I decided, well, Uh, I don't know much about how this really works in a classroom. So I went back to teach first grade as a university professor. Um, And I thought, I'll try this. uh, I'll try this whole language stuff out. Wait, but I remember that people critiqued you when you said you were going to go back to become a first grade teacher. Don't I remember you telling me that story? I decided to go back and try whole language in a classroom with first graders where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And back then, And, uh, you know, I noticed that, you know, some of my kids were learning to read with what I was doing with whole language, but I had this group of kids that were just not making any progress. And, uh, I didn't want to admit it to anybody, but I was kind of thinking, well, gosh, um, maybe I ought to try phonics. (laughs) So I, I started doing sort of what I called closet phonics lessons with a small group of my kids during recess, after lunch, when they went to library, because they weren't making progress. And I started noticing that when I did that, that these kids actually started to make some progress. And um, so uh, I have to say that that's kind of where it began was I knew that whole language was not going to get the job done with all my students. And in a response to my children in first grade, I decided to pull out the old phonics stuff and and uh, try bringing them along that way. And they, they did very, very well. And by the end of the year, um, the students in my class were reading uh, on grade level. I had 72 first graders to teach that year. Do you know what I love about your story, actually, is I think so many teachers, as they listen to this podcast, and so many principals and so many admin are going to think, like, I knew that we weren't, the whole language was wrong. Like, I knew it. I knew it was my deep down. It was my gut, right? But mm-hmm. now we have brain science, right? Like now when you talk yeah. about that, like you, now jump us like a for, forward 20 years now because you've come so far in that. That was your gut. But now t- talk me through yeah. the research because now you're doing real live research and brain scans and you have incredible data that you're working with in Utah around it. Do you want to kind of go through that? Um, sure. Uh you know, after I had that classroom experience, uh, I went back to the university and I started conducting more research into comprehension, which was my first love. 
Um, but as I thought and reflected upon what had gone on with whole language in my own classroom that year, I was really worried about where the field was going. And it was about that time that um, the NAEP results came out for uh, the country and California that had been, you know, very much involved in whole language was at the bottom of the heap that, that year. I think it was about 1994, if I remember correctly. And that was, that was really troubling because that's a good hunk of students in a big state with a lot of influence. And so um, at that point in time, it got to be a hot political issue, this business of phonics. And it was hotly debated from about 1994 till 2000 when the National Reading Panel sort of settled the debate, uh, at least in large measure, with their meta-analyses of phonics programs and phonics teaching methods. I made a real philosophical shift away from doing things that I thought felt good and looked good to doing things that were grounded in real hard converging data. And that's when I started to come in on science. It was back then it was called the scientifically based reading research. And uh, now we call it science of reading. Um, reading that's right. Basically what it is. It's a body of research that we've all been uh, contributing to over the years. I actually think what you're talking about is people, everyone wants to do what's right for kids. And now we know better, right? Like a little bit of what you said was my gut told me better, but now there's real science to like guide mm -hmm. me better. Mm -hmm. um, but you're also doing letter sounds, like teaching kids their letters and their sounds. That one was a fun one. Um, when we looked at uh, alphabet learning and we were looking at the letter a week thing. <laughs> Everybody was doing a letter a week. I mean, you know, we were pounding those little kindergartners with the S sound for a solid week. In fact, I, when I was a kindergarten teacher, I had done the letter a week and I'd seen what kind of outcomes it had in my kindergarten. And I'd been working with teachers for the years. And I went to a conference in Washington, D.C. because I had an IES grant at the time. And I listened to some work that was done by Harold Pashler and, and uh, Cepeda and others at the University of San Diego. And I was fascinated with what they were doing on this, this law of 1020, they called it. And they, they said, you know, memory set things like letters and numbers and multiplication tables and state capitals. And those kinds of things are best learned if they are not practiced in the same way each time. And if they're practiced over and over again in a spiraled review. So I decided to do a study on uh, how kids would do if they were taught letters in a different way at a different pacing rather than letter a week and not to mastery, but rather in a distributed review. And it turned out when we got to the end of that study that um, the kids who were doing the old letter a week were, you know, benchmarking letter name fluency proficiency at a, in the low 40s in these very um, hard to teach classrooms, I did this study and it was a, a district of, of a very diverse di district, um, highly, uh, it was very filled with children who are, were disadvantaged in terms of access to resources, poverty, students, low income. And um, so I wanted to have a really good environment for this to happen and to test it in the most you know, difficult to teach situation. And in the classrooms where they did that weak thing, low 40s proficiency, 
classrooms where we did the letter a day with multiple reuse throughout the year in different orders and ways, we uh, got something a lot closer to 90%. We were at 88% proficiency. Well, that's not a small difference. <laughs> uh, and, and we reported the results. Um, you know, it got, it got picked up by lots of different companies. Uh, it's cited by the, by the folks who write, wrote the letters, uh, teacher professional development programs. So yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a, it was one of the pieces of research I did that also made a fairly good splash nationally. Well, it um, it's so intuitive, right? That kids need more access to the same material that they forget it basically is what it kind yeah. of insinuates that kids, kids just need more kids who are struggling or kids who are merging in their reading need to keep revisiting it. Right. That's like the yeah, letter sound to get it. Yeah. When you look at the, when you look at the research now on uh, neurology, you know, and neurosciences about how the brain learns, uh, almost all the research is saying now that students do far better with distributed practice, right? Interleaved practice as compared with what we used to do, which was massed practice with mastery being the object. Um, we're not after so mastery. We're not after mastery now, you know, hanging on to it for a week till you get it and then moving on to something else. We're after giving you a chance to hit it kind of get your brain off of it, give the brain a little bit of rest, time to think about what you learn, come back to it in a few weeks, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, until the kids have it. That's a very different practice model than do it all week and then leave it for six months and maybe come back to it. This episode is brought to you by Just Right Reader. Extend phonics instruction, strengthen school-home partnerships, and accelerate reading achievement with take-home decodable packs from Just Right Reader. Personalized take-home packs make phonics fun and accessible for families. Every book comes with a video phonics lesson and writing pages to help readers reinforce their decoding and writing skills. To learn more, visit JustRightReader.com. I mean, interleaving is pretty powerful if you think about it, of mm -hmm. um, the more times you hit kids. Like, what, what's the definition you give interleaving? Because, Well, interleaving is not doing the practice of the same things in the same way. So varied tasks, okay, and, um, and varied sets of things that you study. So I might have been doing just, you know, showing kids uh, – the letter name and sound. Uh, and then the next time I bring in how to write it. And the next time I bring in how to discriminate it in a bunch of other letters and, and another might be, I take dictation and, and, and see how they can write it fast and legibly. And another thing might be that they associate it with an object. Um, you know, all the things that we put into those lovely letter books. Well, you know, you helped us design those letter books. I'm so glad you brought it up because we added in the writing because you told me they needed practice to write. We added in kind of, you told me we needed more rounds of letter books so that they had more moments to practice it. Um, and you were pretty clear with me too of they needed, like the picture had to be something that was very clear for English language learners and, and yeah. not ambiguous at all. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also told me that we had our videos, like we wanted them to watch and reread those the books and watch the videos numerous times like you were so clear in what was going to make it powerful 
Yeah, I mean, we talked about what we call multi-componential um, instruction. And that really comes out of the meta-analysis that was done by Shane Piasta and his colleagues in 2010, I think it was. And reported Reading Research Quarterly, which just, you know, basically confirmed what we had learned in our study that, you know, having kids do lessons that look at all aspects of learning a letter and then reviewing that over and over and over again, uh, we found that about four repetitions was all we needed by February. Most of the kids knew their letters and knew them very quickly and very accurately. We didn't need the full year um, where if you did the old week, you got it once, you know, way back in September, you got B and you might get B again in March if you're lucky. And you never did get to elemental PZ, all of that at the end of the year, because there's not enough weeks to go through the alphabet even twice. You said something to me that I just want to like say, because I think um, teachers and admin will love it. You said certain letters are harder to learn than other letters. Do you remember telling me that? Oh, yeah. Can you talk and about that? And for different ways and different reasons. Yeah. So I mean, tell us about that. I mean, they'll be, I think people will find that fascinating. Like it's, it's powerful. Well, I, mean, I think most people will find this intuitive as well. I mean, anybody who watches um, Wheel of Fortune knows that, uh, you know, some letters are more important than others. You know, you buy a couple of vowels and, you know, which of the consonants you want to have that are most frequently exposed. Now, hardly anybody starts out with Q or Z or X uh, because, you know, those don't appear a lot in in uh, either spoken language or in written language. And, and so that's a problem because you're giving you're giving every letter the same amount of attention as if they're equally exposed. There's a lot of other reasons to think about letters differently. There, some letters easier to form in writing and remember. Some letters have the name attached to, I mean, the sound inside the name of the letter, and some don't. And sometimes the sound at the beginning of the when you say the letter name, like uh, P and T, and some have it at the end, like F and S. And so the sounds at the beginning or at the end, and that we found through the work of Laura Justice and others that 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 it's very predictable. The kids will learn the letters that have that have the the sounds of letters that have the sound in the beginning of the syllable, P and T, most easily than F and S at the end. And then if you don't have it in the name, they're harder to learn. So there's all these aspects that make letters a very interesting topic of research and, um, and attention in schools. You talk about sometimes the social justice that guides you in mm. sharing your practices. I've heard you share that. Oh yeah. I, I'm a firm believer that, uh, I don't know if you've, if, if, if you or any of the folks who listen to this podcast have seen the movie, the right to read, but boy, that'll, that'll jolt you out of your chair about the, the, the notion that reading and learning to read is a, huge part of social justice. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, teaching a child to read is the most important thing any teacher can ever do in the elementary school yeah. because it opens the doors for everything. It opens, I mean, if you look at the Mississippi miracle, for example, you know, that everybody's been celebrating across the country and how well they've done, yeah. they found a really interesting, unexpected correlation. They found that as they focused on and raised reading scores, the math scores went up too. Right. It's, it's not and, so crazy, actually. It's like, I mean, of it's course, not really science crazy, scores probably too. The doors to every academic area. 
I mean, when you take a test in math, you take a test usually using word problems or what we call story problems. So if you can't read, you can't do the math. And it just goes on and on like that. So yes, um, this is the most basic, basic we can put our hands to. And it's, and it's cousin, it's kissing cousin is writing. And those two need to walk down the road together. And I'm a big, big fan of that. And uh, with my own, with my Talk own children. That, yeah. T tell yeah. us more about that. Cause the reading writing connection, like, like sit with that for a second. Cause you, 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 you push that on, on like, oh, you're like, you got to add writing into all that. of our decodables. So like, well, but tell me like why we literally redesigned all of our books. When you told me this, we like went back and went to the drawing board and we added in a writing page, not tons of writing, but the tiniest moment, like wh what's the reading writing connection that you want everyone to know about? Well, again, if you look at, um, if you look at how people learn letters or learn words or anything else, reading only takes um, the uh, language of, uh, of any written page so deep into the mind and it's retrievable through cues that aren't as strong as when you write them. The, the motoric, mo the, the actual you know, movement of the arm and hand uh, to write a letter, to write words, uh, is a much deeper imprint on long-term memory and gives a better accessing cue for you to, to retrieve it than simply recognizing a letter alone or recognizing a word alone like we do in reading. And we've we've um, not we've not appropriated the power of writing to help reading, and the power of reading to help writing like we should have over the years. Those two cannot be separated. No good phonics lesson should ever be uh, uh, designed or used that doesn't include writing as well as reading. And, uh, and and that's what the neurological uh, neurological studies uh, are really showing now, that writing has a much deeper imprint. If you if you've ever listened to um, some of the work that Nat Natalie Wexler is doing on uh, the knowledge gap, and she writes a lot about in that book about the power of writing and how writing deepens knowledge and deepens the ability to retrieve things from long-term memory. And you know what's so interesting? It's a big one, but it also like during COVID, so many kids didn't write, right? Like they were just behind their screen. And I feel like those kids in that kinder and first grade era, and even like all the Yariots, frankly, everyone, no one wrote. So it, it, it almost makes it more imperative now that we push right. the, the writing to support the reading so much more. Is that, is that what you'd say to that? Absolutely. The writing solidifies the reading. Writing solidifies the reading. All right. Well, I'm glad you pushed me to add. As I tell teachers all the time, <laughs> you're not done teaching reading till you've taught them to write it. All right. I love that. I think that'll, I think, you know, when you say these things, the, you know, we're so lucky to have an audience of administrators, teachers, superintendents. So I feel like that message goes for everyone, right? From the classroom mm -hmm. all the way up to the district level is thinking about that reading and writing connection. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. What absolutely. else, Ray, what else would you tell, like what else, you know, you're, everyone wants to like, I, I, we fly you all around the country, Ray, because everyone loves to talk to you. Like they're like, send me Ray Wright. So I want to hear him. Like if you had a moment to talk to everyone and give advice, what's, 
what's that advice you want to put out there to in this social imperative that you feel so passionately about? Well, I've done some thinking about this because next week I'm going to Chicago to speak. And I'm also going to be speaking on a screening of the right to read here in the state of Utah on a panel. I'm really big on do's and don'ts. So I'm going to give some do's. One of the first things we have to care about is if we allocate enough time to the thing called teaching, reading and writing or literacy, as you may refer to it. And what research seems to be showing us that the minimum amount of time is about two hours, 120 minutes, which is uh, like that never that. That, yeah. that never that happens, right? That doesn't happen very often. But that's what we know from you know large-scale research studies, that if you're going to really impact reading and writing uh, as, as literacy in the early grades, you've got to give it 120 minutes. And uh, so that's a, that's a big one. We do have a lot of research on if you do allocate 120 minutes, you will get better results. And a lot of that work was done back in around... Uh, 2008, 2009, 10, around there by Tim Shanahan, when he left the university and became the uh, uh, director of reading in the Chicago public schools. And the first thing he did was put into place uh, a 120 hour literacy block, K-12. Yeah, but Ray, it's not just about, it's not just about the amount of time because Oh, because you got to, you got to spend the right amount of time on the right, right things when you're teaching. You can't be doing uh, a very low, slow pace. The instruction has to be briskly paced and transition times need to be minimized. And we need to be focusing on building knowledge, not just teaching reading skills. And then, then um, we need to try to get as much practice into the same amount of time as we can. The teachers who get 10 practice episodes within the same amount of time as teachers who only get five, well, guess who's going to get the better results? The kid who gets 10 practice opportunities, not five. So you have to really think about how you use time. You've got to allocate it to the right things. And we know what those are. We know that it's writing, comprehension, fluency, and word recognition work. And those have to be done. What about phonemic awareness? Well, that, that falls into word recognition work. I mean, that's the that's the ground level work you do to get kids aware of sounds in language to be applied then, of course, in recognizing words as you do phonics. That's what PA does is it gets you aware of sounds that you can put with the letters you see so that when phonics instruction hits, you've got the ability to think about those things and put them together. But if you've never been listening to speech and tearing it down, uh, that's a real odd thing for you to have to be asked to do. And it's not, it's not natural. I mean, no kid sits around and goes, yeah. oh, wow, there's the word cat. Ugh, how many sounds are there in cat? You know? It's just not, that isn't, that isn't inbred in the, in the human brain. That's a, that's a learned behavior. It doesn't come natural. So then one of the, I'm guessing you're going to do a do on like that explicit, like the more explicit we yeah. can be, yep. right? That's what I'm hearing. Explicit. Evidence-based, systematic, structured instruction for kids. Um, that's, that's got to happen. It can't be, you know, happenstance here and there, once in a while. If you get to it, you know, it has to be planned. It has to be sequenced. It has to have a structure on around the lessons that's very explicit. And uh, if you don't do that, you won't get the same kinds of results. Then there's a whole bunch of don'ts I wouldn't, I'm going to talk about. 
One of them is do not use balanced literacy. Okay? I mean, do not go there to anymore. To me, it's amazing. But, but Ray, like sit on that for a second because people still are. So like, I know. Really- 70, last fall, there was a survey that said over 70% of the schools are still mired in using the three queuing systems. And that's, uh, uh, we know and that. why is that don't? Like, hit that don't. Like, the reason behind it is, like, we know better. There's real research behind mm-hmm. us now that says it doesn't work. Well, it was never meant to be uh, used the way it was. It was used to get kids to guess around words rather than to actually decode them. And if you go back to the early work in Australia and New Zealand, those, the three queuing systems were called confirmation cues after to be used after you have tried to sound through a word and figure out how to blend it or spell it. So what happened in our translation here in the U S was it got used as the way to do things. And you would only go to decoding or spelling if you couldn't guess around the word with those three cues. And we just got it absolutely upside down and backwards. So no one should be doing that anymore. Um, and you know, we shouldn't overgeneralize research that's conducted in settings other than real classrooms. We've got a lot of research that's been done with special education or in clinics or in settings that aren't regular instructions environments in the early grades. And, you know, you learn as a researcher, very first thing is don't overgeneralize research from the context in which it was done. You know, I think people are going to feel real. Later all the time. I think they're gonna be. I think you're gonna. People are gonna feel very valued to hear that. That like put it in classrooms. Like do it with kids yeah, that the work you and I know we want to move. Yeah. And, and most of my research has been field studies. You know, in classrooms. So I, I feel strongly about that enough to have let you know done that with my career. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't spend too much time fretting over which core reading program or reading intervention programs um, I purchase that rely on balanced literacy practices. They're all not very good. <laughs> yeah, they're all bad. We know that. Yeah, that's right. You know? That's right. Um, and then I think everybody in the country should uh, watch the Right to Read movie and should listen to the podcast Sold a Story uh, if they haven't, um, because that will open your eyes as to why we are where we are with the science of reading right now. And another movie that's great, it. another great movie, if you haven't seen it, is Waiting for Superman. Yeah, no, all these things are... Um, I feel like we've been trying to do right by schools and trying to do right by kids for so long. And now we really know, like we know what happened. We know sold a story, right to read. Like we know, we, we know how we went off track. We know how we weren't using research and now it's time to like embrace what's in front of us. Right. Exactly. And, Um, and 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 value it in classrooms. Yeah. And to be candid about the things we don't know too. You know, no, teachers exactly. will say, well, what about this? I'll say, well, I, you know, I can give you my best guess, but we don't have converging scientific evidence on that question yet. I love it. Great. Oh my God. I am. Um, it never gets old to talk to you. And ah. I learn something new every time. And in fact, I just want to like say something to you. We created our science of reading symposiums. I don't know if you know this because of you. Um, you and I were on a call and you told me that balanced literacy fact and it upset me that so many people were using balanced literacy and not like hearing from the researchers. And we created our symposiums because I was like, people need to talk to more of the researchers. So mm-hmm. now we created a podcast that you didn't have to just come to one of our symposiums. You could literally just hear a researcher, hear, you know, hear fabulous practices. 
I travel all around the country and talk to you and talk to other researchers and talk to um, like district people doing district leaders doing amazing things. And that's why we started this podcast was just um, giving so you get to share those do's and don'ts with as many people as you possibly can. Well, and that's our hope with Science of Reading is that more and more teachers and administrators through the efforts of people who know the science of reading research will get to know it themselves and yeah. benefit from the knowledge that has been generated over decades and thousands of hours of work by researchers. Um, you know, I'm not the only one to stand on here. There are many giant shoulders upon whom my, my work stands. And that's the way we want science to progress is it, it should build, you know, on, on top of something else someone else has done. And that's how we grow and get better. Uh, and any, any good profession that relies on science is that you have these replicated results that converge on a single finding. We can talk about how big the outcomes will be, how impactful they will be for students. And that's what we want. We want to be able to say to teachers, look, if you do this, you know, you're going to be able to move those kids scores, you know, 35 percentile points on a national test of reading. Yeah. Everyone wants to move kids. Everyone wants to accelerate reading. We all want to. It's, um, right. That's, it's, it's a unifier across the whole yep. for everyone, parents, teachers, mm -hmm. admins, everyone wants to do it. Yep. Um, all right. Well, it never gets old. I can't wait to nah, do another one. Always fun. I'll bring you back for our hundred show, our 50th <laughs> show. Um, and Thanks so much for like just being a great resource and a great friend sure. and a, a champion for kids. Well, thank you for having me. It was always fun for us to converse about these things called science of reading. <laughs> Have a great day. Thanks for joining us. If you found this conversation valuable, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We will see you next time on Science of Reading Leadership guiding minds, transforming lives.